Welcome to another episode of Energy Talks. I'm journalist Markham Hislop. This podcast is all about interesting conversations with energy and climate experts from around the world. And don't forget to follow us on social media, on Twitter, at E-N-E-R-G-I Media, and my personal handle, at PoliticalHam, on Facebook, facebook.com slash energymedia. Energy.media is our website, where you'll find Markham and Energy columns, news stories and op-eds, and the Energy Student Resources Portal, a wiki-style collection of our work that's free for high school teachers and university professors to use in their classrooms. Now sit back, relax, and enjoy the episode. Well, here we are at episode 107 of the Energy Talks podcast, and I'm really looking forward to this interview. It'll be with Ryan Brown, who is the CEO of Salient Energy, and they are making zinc ion batteries. But we're not going to talk just about battery technology, though we will, and we'll get to that in a little bit. But Ryan and his team actually came out of, he comes out of Waterloo, Ontario. They moved to Halifax, Nova Scotia, to be part, to quote, part of an accelerator that Jeff Don, uh, the rather now famous uh, uh, battery uh, technologist scientist as, as set up there, is associated with. And we're going to talk a little bit about industrial policy, industrial strategy around how Halifax, of all places, has a kind of emerged as a battery research cluster. So anyway, welcome to the interview, Ryan. Thanks for having me. So... I want to hear some about your story. How did you get started at Waterloo and and tell us about why you moved to Halifax? Yeah, so uh, I grew up uh, wanting to be rich, <laughs> which meant I wanted to go into finance in high school because I saw bankers on TV. Uh, in high school, I decided not to take any science classes because I thought, well, the, doing science is not a good way to get rich. Uh, I'll just avoid that. I went into business school. I got an internship at an investment bank, and it took me one month on the job to realize I had made a terrible mistake. <laughs> <laughs> and I had a quarter life crisis where I said, I like working hard, but I can't work hard for something I don't care about. What do I care about? Uh, I did some research on what I thought were pressing issues. I determined that climate change was the single most important urgent issue facing the world and that that would be something that if I spent my life working on it I'd feel good about so I actually restarted school this was three years in a university so I had to go back to first year uh, I enrolled in nanotech engineering and then in that first semester I said okay where is the what what's the technology I want to work on in clean tech that I think will have the biggest impact uh I chose batteries. I got involved in the battery research lab. Uh, I did all my work terms at a, a battery startup out of MIT. And I just made, made my life about batteries, um, which unlike most of the decisions I made in my early 20s was a really good decision. <laughs> well, you know, I, I think it's uh, become a, a just a truism now that batteries uh, are at the heart of the energy transition. Uh, the accepted wisdom is that somewhere down the road past 2050 uh, the primary energy consumed by the global economy would probably be somewhere around you know 70% clean energy and maybe 30% hydrogen and other low carbon fuels so if we just take that as kind of a you know a, a, a rule of thumb 
uh, that means we have to make a lot more electricity. We have to store that electricity. And that literally then puts batteries at the heart of modern industrial economies. And so mm -hmm. we do a lot of interviews around battery technology. And I have to tell you, um, one of the reasons we do it is because there, is, and in particular in Canada, I don't think we understand this. The Europeans kind of get it. And the Americans kind of kind of get it. The Chinese really get it. But uh, battery science and battery engineering and battery uh, the battery industry is so bloody innovation innovative. I mean, there is just more chemistries and and uh, advances in in different components of the battery with electrolytes or anodes or cathodes or whatever it is. And a lot of that is what's propelling the industry forward. You know, it's like this has been going on for 10 or 15 years, maybe 20 years. And a lot of that stuff is now finding its way off the bench into demonstration projects or, you know, pilots or now being it's, you know, ready for uh, scale up and commercialization. And and uh, that's going to change everything. And that's why I'm really excited about your zinc ion batteries. But I'm going to just want to get you to respond to that the general idea that the battery space is so innovative. Yeah, I'm actually going to slightly, I'm going to disagree in a nuanced way. So I think the research around batteries is very varied. We've done like so much to find different chemistries. Um, you can go into endless papers about variations on nanomaterials that show different properties, but let's depends where you define innovation. So I would, for me, I would draw the bounds of innovation of like, what's a new solution that's come out of a lab, been commercialized and is in the market um, and is delivering value at scale. The battery industry had lead acid uh, until the 1990s uh, it had nickel metal hydride and you know nickel cadmium as small players, but the next big thing was lithium ion, which came out of the personal electronics revolution. Um, game changer made portable electronics possible. Lithium ion became better for electric vehicles, variations in the cathode material, which are absolutely major innovations. But the thing that made lithium ion so good from 2010 to 2020, was improvements in design and manufacturing that took the cost from but it took the cost from like a thousand bucks a kilowatt hour down to a hundred bucks a kilowatt hour those improvements a lot of that was related to just the scale of your manufacturing a lot of design improvements but if if you if if you look at kind of the marginal innovation on batteries at least with lithium-ion I don't think the picture's as rosy because now we've gotten to the point where we squeeze what we can out of improvements in manufacturing. We squeeze what we can out of like packing more energy into the cell. Obviously there's still marginal improvements to be made, but now we're just hitting a limit where the batteries cost as much as the materials. And the it's for the current generation of the technology it's hard to see how we're going to make that next big leap that we need from that technology. And there are some candidate replacements for lithium ion. Um, but the challenge is there is, and this is, 
uh, I think the terms lock in is that once you have an industry that has the amount of uh, CapEx invested in factories that defines how manufacturing can be done. And once you have an industry that's used to a form factor for their batteries, which is small, modular, wire it together, the candidate technologies that can plug into that infrastructure and get ad adopted, there's actually a narrow range of it. And that's significant because while research is covering everything, there's the filters of batteries that can make a difference to the in energy transition is it's has to be exciting research. It has to be manufacturable in a way that's competitive, which probably means using standard lithium-ion manufacturing. It needs to have the supply chain that will ramp up at the rate that the energy transition demands and stay high enough to sustain that becoming a critical part of our infrastructure. And it needs to uh, th that's another filter. And then the other, the last filter is like customers need to be able to adopt it quickly um, to pay premiums, to want to adopt a new technology to do, that, to do all that stuff. So a long winded answer of saying at different aspects of the battery supply chain are very innovative, but because of the complexity required to take something new and get it to be something that's contributing to the climate transition, the the battery industry is a tough is a tough nut to crack. Well, we always encourage interviewees to disagree with me, and they <laughs> often do. Uh, but that being said, I'm not sure that you actually disagreed with me. Um, <laughs> yeah. I I think what you did was you certainly added complexity uh, to mm -hmm. the to the view, and uh, and I learned a lot listening to your to your answer. But I don't think you fundamentally disagreed with me because the even if all of and I, you're in the industry, you know. Uh, and so let's, I take your answer at, at just at face value, except that still, that still doesn't preclude all of the kind of innovation on the next chemistries like your own. That, Absolutely. You know, yeah. that, that, that will, uh, that will, um, uh, that will come along and be the next, the next thing, because there's going to be so much, so many applications in this space and I think you point this out on your website that that there will be lots of room for new for new chemistries and new approaches to fill in all those market that all that market space. Lithium ion is just isn't going to do everything. It can't. It's a workhorse. It has great applications in in vehicles and because it's light and it's powerful. But you know, there's flow batteries and there's all sorts of other that that are going to have and are are already have a niche. And so maybe this is the introduction or the segue into talking about zinc ion batteries. So give us kind of the primer on, on zinc ion. Yeah, would love to. So um, part of, you know, obviously it, it flows from my view of the industry of what the challenges are that where we are today. So um, I was part of the first wave of battery startups. There was a ton of investment in 2010 where the mantra was, Lithium ion costs a thousand bucks a kilowatt hour. Uh, its features are that it's light and compact. We can make big, bulky batteries that are safe because size and weight don't matter. And we're going to replace lithium ion and we're going to supply the grid of energy storage. What happened to those companies is that the price of lithium ion fell by from basically like every year, 10%. Uh, and they found that they didn't have a place in the market. And now, Lithium ion is the 
undisputed king of electric vehicles and stationary energy storage. We founded this company because we knew or we had confidence that the energy storage revolution and the electric vehicle revolution would grow as quickly uh, or, or we'd hoped it would grow as quickly as needed to address climate change, but we were optimistic it would grow really, really quickly and that the uh, lack of available supply of those key raw materials would necessitate an alternative to lithium ion for stationary energy storage. And at the time that was, uh, you know, after all those companies had kind of not been able to keep up with lithium ion, you know, we were told over and over, like, you shouldn't try to compete head on with lithium ion because the cost curve is too dangerous. And we, you know, we took that seriously and we said, okay, we have to make a battery that has cheap materials, abundant materials, but uses that same manufacturing that lithium ion does so that when they get better, we get better and we can like play in this environment where lithium ion dominates. And then the last part of it is we design our batteries to be a swap and replacement so that we're not asking customers to compromise when they want to switch from lithium ion. So that was the philosophy behind it. And our value as a battery is we're completely safe. So our water-based battery can't catch fire or explode. Uh, we use materials that are uh, more sustainably produced, so way lower greenhouse gas emissions. They're produced in abundance in North America. They're completely recyclable. So all that, we're a, a more sustainable battery. Um, and otherwise, we're just like, you know, if you had a Powerwall, if you had our battery, you would not know the difference. Um, so that's what we offer. Well, that seems to me to be a very clever strategy because essentially you're the better lithium ion uh, battery in your space. We're way right. heavier, so I, I need to add that caveat. Like, we yeah, would yeah. never work in cars, yeah. Right. Okay, but uh, let's say that, uh, <clears throat> you know, our household, we're going to buy an electric vehicle in the next couple of years. And, you know, we've already gone to a heat pump. We want to go to a, a heat pump a water heater. Essentially, we want to get rid of ga gas out of the house and go to electricity. But but battery st but storage is a big issue because here on Vancouver Island, the power does occasionally go out. And we've had to go out for up to three days. So we, we need a, a battery. So the, the EV will we'll get the, will be, will get the, the wiring set up so that we can wire it into, into the house. But we'd also like a battery, just, you know, like a power wall. So, and we have lots of room in the garage. So mm -hmm. for a residential application, we sound like, it sounds like we would be, a great customer for your product. Yes. Yeah. Okay. So, and then, so that's the residential side and we shouldn't, this is really critical because, you know, I've done a couple of interviews with battery folks who were involved in the uh, Los Angeles and the California market and, and residential storage, commercial storage and business storage played a big role, not the only role. And I kind of got taken to task for that on social media, but, a very big role in avoiding blackouts this summer. Yep. And, you know, and so, and next year will be even better because they're adopting bat battery storage at record rates down there. And, and so every year there's going to be more capacity built into the grid and, and they'll have, you know, more stability and rel and reliability and, and so on. So that's, that's one application. 
but the one that that it seems to me has got to be huge is is just stationary storage on the grid because there's so much wind and solar coming on stream and i've talked to executives of utilities and and you know sort of uh, regional power associations and they're looking at hydrogen they're looking at lithium ion they're looking at uh, compressed air i mean they're looking because they they've got so is are those the folks that you're talking to uh about adopting your batteries yes and i'd i'd love to with your permission nerd out a little bit more on the residential segment oh please but do our... please we lo we love nerding out here <laughs> yeah so our our strategy is first we're going to make the best residential energy storage system uh and succeed in that segment but with the success of that eventually have gigafactories whether they're ours or something we're working on with other people supplying the world with the batteries they need to make the integration of renewables possible. Uh, and so right now the grid has these big central sources of power that get distributed out to the homes as an end node. And it's one way. Uh, and we have to oversize all of our transmission and distribution infrastructure to accommodate the busiest, um, most congested, most power hungry days of the year which right. is you gotta, you gotta plan for peaks you yeah plan it's for like peaks. a highway and so it's like uh you know i'll i'm from ontario so the 401 it's like you know <laughs> you drive down sunday 4 a.m it's completely free but like it actually needs to be like probably a 20 lane highway to make it to the to make it humane and so that's how our grid works all our wires are like highways they have to be overbuilt to accommodate changes in demand and supply uh, and like most big projects, it's really hard to build that new stuff. So I think the underappreciated thing in the home segment, everyone gets the idea that a individual homeowner can use a battery as backup power to avoid blackouts. And what you alluded to is that batteries have a big role to play in avoiding blackouts. And the more general statement is if we can use batteries integrated into people's homes, that respond to the grid and become a two-way player instead of just a consumer, the ability to use our existing infrastructure to get a lot farther in renewable adoption is like, that's the, that's the single biggest opportunity in integrating renewables because we know how hard it is to do these big projects. We know what interconnection queues are like, but getting people's like, it's easy to put stuff on people's homes. And so that like, if I can make, you know, one thing, if I can get one message through is people should should really pay attention to the, what's, what's called the virtual power plant space, where sure. people's homes participate in the grid two-way, and we actually create a super smart, flexible, high renewable grid. Right. In, in Cal some places, they're called aggregators. So, uh -huh. you know, basically uh, a company will come in and they'll organize a neighborhood or a city or whatever the scale uh, it, it is. And and then they organize, there's one point of contact to the grid and and they will, you know, disperse the payments and and do all the, the organizing. So virtual, virtual power plant. And that's 
some of you know i talked to uh, one um, interviewee they 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 do it for uh, multifamily buildings basically apartment buildings and condos in in los angeles and it and and it works i mean they can they can it's demand management they can they can uh, they get permission to adjust heating and air conditioning up and down depending on on demand and uh, they can go right down their system is so sensitive it can go it, they can adjust for individual suites that's how sensitive sensitive it is. Wow. When, you know, it's and, and this is what I, I'm talking about the innovate innovation space is because this is 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 this a battery story? Well, it kind of, yeah, of course it's a battery story, but it's innovation on the business side, the business model yep. as opposed to the the actual technology. So, uh, I think I'm winning this argument. By the way, <laughs> yeah, no, I'm <laughs> I'm sold. I the the. I think the innovation of how we're going to use batteries and flexible response is going to be one of those like dark horse things that when we're hitting targets for the Ferris Accord, we're like, oh, thank goodness that happened. I think that's going to be like an ace up our sleeve. Indeed. Well, look, uh, we, we glossed over something that you said uh, about safety. And that, and you said water-based, but what you really mean is, is that your electrolyte is water-based and mm -hmm. not, un, unlike lithium, lithium ion, and that basically eliminates fire. So you, you can have yep. a, you can have a, one of your batteries in a garage and be confident that, um, you know, nobody's burning down the, the, the house in the middle of the night. Exactly. And we completed our UL safety testing to that standard just this past summer showing unsurprisingly that there's just, there's nothing you can do to these batteries to create like a fire or explosion risk. And, and another advantage here is that uh, if uh, stationary storage applications uh, go to switch to zinc ion or some other chemistry, but let's say zinc ion, then that frees up more lithium battery uh, capacity to go into automobiles. Into, tra into, tra into transportation. So you're into buses, you're into, you know, long haul, freight hauling, whatever, whatever it is, but we don't need, we can, we, and, and I think you made this point earlier is that the, the right battery can go to the right application and you get the best value out of your, your battery industry. Yeah. And further the customers benefit when the battery is made for them. Right now you have the automakers that are just like, the marquee VIP customers for every battery manufacturer and every battery manufacturer wants to make a better EV battery. And I would say uh, the the energy storage industry is a little bit neglected in terms of the same level of innovation, where even though it's as important to the clean energy transition, because of the size of the EV market, it's not getting the same like focus from the producers. And so we are excited to be 100% focused on the energy storage market and give them the treatment that like the Ford, Tesla, GM get from the big battery folks. So let's talk about then, you know, scaling up and and supplying all of the zinc ion batteries that the energy storage applications will require because it, I don't know how many, you know, gigawatts of storage it would take, thousands, millions, It's I, it's a huge number. Um, where is your company at in terms of bringing, uh, you know, the battery to market and, uh, how will you, what are your plans for scaling up? Yeah. Uh, great question. Uh, so right now we have a small pilot plant in Dartmouth where we make the equivalent of one power wall a month. So very small scale, 
but these are like full-sized big pouch cells. So we're making commercial cell designs. Obviously, we're going to iterate on those designs before we launch to market. And we're making it at a scale where we're using uh, smaller versions of the standard lithium-ion manufacturing. Um, our next step is to build a well, we're going to continue doing that. We're going to refine our product. We're going to get everything locked in, um, certified in-field pilots, like everything for that commercial maturity. But then our next big production step is building our first factory. And this this won't be a gigafactory. It's going to be something that we can do quickly. And we're going to focus on being able to serve thousands of homes a year. Um, and the benefit we have from our technology is... Um, Whenever you're scaling up these new chemistry-based technologies, you have to you have to build it, you have to specify it, you have to build your factory, but you have to make sure that the supply chain supplying you is already there. So we just use metal zinc, we use manganese dioxide, which is made for actually um, disposable batteries, and both both the mining and processing into battery-grade chemicals happens at scale in North America already. And so we can, you know, if we build a factory, we have our designs, we can scale and the supply chain can scale with us to start being a major supplier of, of residential batteries, at least in North America. And then, you know, eventually other parts of the world. Well, let's talk about that because I'm, I'm fascinated these days with uh, in the rise of new called clean energy clusters. So, uh, you know, like a, a battery cluster and, and full disclosure, I've done this on, on previous in, uh, uh, podcasts. Uh, this summer, I wrote a report for a client, uh, you know, as a contract writer, uh, the Alberta Federation of Labor, they wanted to, they wanted a, a, you know, clean energy strategy, an industrial policy strategy for Alberta. And one of the seven missions that we described in the report is that, um, is, uh, playing in the battery supply chain you know alberta has critical minerals uh i don't think we were we weren't thinking about zinc ion at the time it was you know mainly lithium ion but in north america there's a, a shortage of critical minerals and then the refining and and smelting and, and processing to make them into battery metals that can then go into the into the battery pack and so we thought that, you know, Alberta, if it put the effort into and had the right policy and, and supports in place, could could be a place where that refining uh, capacity was built. And then, of course, you build, you know, I assume that battery plants get get uh, built close to the source of their of, of that material. Mm -hmm. So just as a hypothetical, if Alberta say actually listen to the labor movement and and <laughs> and implemented a strategy like that and put in place you know the the infrastructure and and provided program is that for your particular space and or uh, company in the battery space would you look at alberta as some place to maybe put in a factory um so I wouldn't so maybe a materials factory, but that would be a um I think the the considerations around materials factory, talent super and super important. So clusters help with that. Like the it it is worth so much to go to a city where you know that there's experienced people at some other battery plant that, 
you know, maybe they're not due for a promotion for a while. And so they can come over to you, but then also for employees working in a cluster, it's like, yeah, I can take that job. If it doesn't work out, I can go across the street. So, so for talent, super important. Um, but other like main inputs we think about for factories is, you know, what's our source of energy? What's the carbon impact of the energy? What's our proximity to, um, sources? Um, so I would say yes, if there's a talent cluster, yes, if the other parts of the factory make sense. Um, and then I just like make a more general comment about clusters. What you've described is kind of the right way to do it, which is like know your strengths and play to the strengths. Like not everywhere is going to be Silicon Valley and it can't. And and so, you know, Halifax is a great example where it's by half and chance it, it became like a global research center for battery technology. Tesla came to town. Dalhousie strategically expanded their research into batteries. Um, there's a couple of battery innovation companies there, and it's becoming a really great place to do early stage battery research and development. And further, Canada is an amazing place to get skilled immigrants to come into this industry because we actually like welcome immigrants and the entire battery industry is abroad. So uh that was i over answered your question but yes alberta that would be so cool if they did a materials thing and um just overall canada should be proud of our willingness to accept the talent to make clusters uh if um if there are any uh uh, university students or, or technical college uh, students who want to, you know, get into the battery industry. Uh, I want to make a point uh, that, that you just made. I want to expand on that a little bit because I just got back from Vancouver. I spent two days there interviewing uh, executives from uh, in the uh, demand side of the hydrogen economy. So we're talking fuel cell manufacturers and and fueling stations and folks who were modifying, uh, you know, long haul trucks to run on hydrogen. And over and over and over again, the the requirement for really smart people, technical people, uh, engineers, uh, designers, uh, technologists, okay, that was almost, I, I think that was probably the number one uh, constraint to development was just getting the human capital, just getting the folks on board. You know, have and so Vancouver has developed this this hydrogen on the demand side cluster, and you know where it can compete with pretty much any place in the world in in terms of you know developing these new these new technologies, and it would seem like that is in your space it's exactly the same, and I, I just on the Alberta theme to just to continue that point, Alberta has an amazing amazing innovation culture there because there are so many engineers that got pumped out of universities and they went into oil and gas. Now they've migrated out of that and they're into, you know, 20% of one firm's uh, hydrogen company that I interviewed, 20% of their uh, employees or technical employees come from oil and gas. And, mm -hmm. and there's, and then of course, uh, you know, there's, there's technology companies there that work in the oil and gas supply chain that can go and, you know, go that have transferable skills and, and it seems like that is, I'll turn this into a question. <laughs> this is an interview, not a rant. Uh, yeah. It seems then that the places that are the most amenable to uh, industrial strategy and policy to build clusters 
It's the human capital side that really is maybe the biggest determinant. Would you agree? Um, I would say it's a major, major determinant. The other key thing that I think Canada unfortunately lacks on is the capital capital side. Um, in that, like, if you yeah, I'm going to give you well, gears for I'm going to give you gears for setting up plants in in the U.S. So yeah, that'll come uh, after this answer. Yeah, you feel free to flog away. Um, the it is it is the case that if you're running like a fast growth company, which you should if you're trying to address the energy transition, um, you got to get money to do that and the it's there's there's like there's very much a flywheel effect of venture capital where clusters form um and that's not something that canada has really well uh some areas have it well i'd say like the toronto waterloo corridor has it but it it becomes the case very quickly that you got to get outside funding uh, which is, you can do that. You can hop on planes, you can go around. But the reality of trying to build a business that's going to have a global impact is you, you got to quickly hop on a plane and go to San Francisco and like talk to those people, talk to that cluster. And so relating it back to the cluster thing, especially in a post-COVID world, we you can go to the different clusters to get the things that matter most to you. Okay, gotcha. And my understanding, you know, in another life, I was back in the dot com boom. I, I had a little experience of the, you know, the, the Silicon Valley culture, and and it's fairly at that time anyway, fairly insular and, and inward looking. So if you said, uh, oh well, you know, we're looking for capital to expand in, you know, we want to build a a gigafactory in in Canada, they'd say, well, we don't know anything about Canada. What would you put in Canada? You know, come build it down here. And then, then we'll give you money. Is that kind of the experience? Um, I would say, I'd say it's less that. Like, I think especially in COVID, like investors got comfortable with writing checks to businesses that were across, you know, the world. Uh, Canada is, uh, um, especially with our R and D tax credits, where fifty cents on the dollar comes back. Like, Canada is actually like a really great place for any investor to put their money, and that comes through really quickly. If you're like Hey, we actually have super smart people here. Plus, it takes two weeks to get the most highly skilled immigrant in the world to come join our team, which is something that is impossible in California. Uh, and it's like well subsidized, and the cost of living is like a third versus the Bay Area. It's really easy to make that case. People are like, "Oh, totally." And and then when you they you come and bring them to the lab, and they see the amount you've built with the budget you've had, they're like, and they're like, "Wow, this is." This wouldn't be possible. In the they, they get ex they cost. get ex they get excited yeah. to join the team. Got totally, it. yeah. With the the factory thing, like, and this is a little bit. Uh, this is America's doing. America's taking industrial policy and protectionism seriously. If you want to sell batteries in America, it is now basically the case that you need to build batteries in America. Uh, which but is... can I can I jump in here for a sec? Because yeah. the the Inflation Reduction Act actually has provisions, uh, you know, for uh, countries that have free trade agreements uh, like Canada to get, be treated on the same footing as the uh, as an American firm. It, has that not changed the equation? I uh, I need to quickly disclaim that I am not an expert on the Inflation Reduction Act. Um, my understanding is there's there's the 
there's tax credits for where you get the minerals from, which is one chunk of it. And Canada is totally on board there. Um, but then there's tax credits for domestic production, domestic production using labor, uh, et cetera, et cetera. Um, I am sure Canada and the U.S. and Mexico are going to continue negotiations to try and prevent, to create the like more free trade that we want. But I don't think that's, from my current understanding of the tax, is it does basically, it is basically U.S. centric and our government should fight that. Okay, uh, we'll grist for another interview. Uh, we'll we'll move on <laughs> to wrap up this to wrap up this interview, Ryan. Um, I know you you talked about what your plans are, you know, to scale up, but but put it, give us a timeline for that, and and what some of the obs, what the biggest obstacles are in the way, and and what some of the advantages are, you know, that uh, will make will make it happen. Yeah. So next year. We're going to come out swinging with a really great looking home battery product. We're going to have some really exciting partnerships to announce. And uh, we're going to try our best to become the, uh, you know, the first name when people think about the future of home batteries. Following that, we're going to quickly go to building our factory. Uh, the biggest challenge right now is because of this battery boom, everyone in the world trying to build battery factories so getting that equipment is actually the longest lead time thing right now so that's why we're you know making sure we have our own pilot plan and starting this early um and then our biggest challenges other than that inside our control is just like it is really hard to make batteries uh solve all the problems then you it's hard to manufacture them then it's hard to manufacture them at quality and so it's we have a great team our you know we have a our head of manufacturing was actually the head of manufacturing at the world's first lithium factory so we got the experience we're uh we're ready um but it's going to be a grind and uh and we're happy to do it because we we believe the world needs better batteries to stave off global warming great now put all of that into a timeline for me Okay, yeah. So next year, uh, in-field installation of the best home energy storage battery uh, on the market. 2024, uh, high volume manufacturing of residential batteries. Setting up, ramping up that factory. 2025, at volume shipments of those residential batteries. Uh, and then pending that success, then it's an expansion into much bigger factories, continuing to win in the residential segment, and then starting to become a supplier for the rest of the energy storage market with the goal of being the primary, the industry standard battery for energy storage by 2030. Well, that's amazing because... Uh, uh regular listeners of of this podcast will will know my theories on you know the energy transition 20 30 years to reach an inflection point on the s curve we're there now we're now there this is essentially if you look at past energy transitions there's always a decade or 15 years where it's really disruptive i mean you know when you go from steam and horses to you know tractors and cars and and trucks and the 20s the 1920s were incredibly disruptive in you know a century ago and now here we are 
the 2020s are our disruptive decade of this energy transition. And it plays out in exactly how you just what you described is is these technologies that were in development, they're getting ready. Now they're getting into the marketplace and then they be, they disrupt the market. They disrupted the industry. Now they're going to disrupt the market, start pushing either either it's new applications that that disrupt you know uh, the industry down the down the line, uh, or it it's disruptive immediately and, and pushes out old technologies. And so uh, we wish you all the best. This is just the coolest thing. Stay in touch. Uh, we uh, we we love Canadian success stories here in <laughs> media, and uh, we wish you all the best in becoming one. Thank you so much. I really appreciate your time. And I'd love to come back whenever you'll have me. Oh, we will. Trust me. Take care. <laughs> Good.